Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. All right, welcome back. Crossover podcast. No Howard Beck this week, but we do have an excellent fill-in. Mark Stein, longtime NBA writer for ESPN and the New York Times. He joins me, and we cover everything in the news right now, from the future of USA basketball to the latest with Dennis Schroeder, Portland. What exactly is it doing? Will Goran Dragic eventually wind up in Dallas or elsewhere? All that more with Mark Stein. Also on this show... Monty McCutcheon, the referee czar within the NBA, he joins me. And there are some new rules going into effect next season that take out some of the crazier plays that players try to do to uh, get fouls called for them. I talked to Monty about some of those changes and what kind of impact it will have on the game. Plus, the free throw line. We all heard the fans chanting 10 seconds for Giannis Tentacumpo every time he went to the line. What does Monty think referees should do in those situations? That and more with Monty McCutcheon. As always, best way to support this podcast, get over to Apple Podcasts, post a comment, leave a rating. It's simple. It's easy. It's free. It's the best way to make sure that we keep doing this podcast week after week. That's it. All right. On to the show. This is The Crossover, an NBA show hosted by Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. It's a whole new level for you and me, Chris, this relationship. Like and subscribe for the best weekly NBA content these two are capable of. What does that mean? Could be the best duo ever. I don't see how you can beat that. Here they are, Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. All right, Crossover Podcast, Chris Mannix, no Howard Beck this week. Beck is taking I was going to say a well-deserved vacation, but it's probably not. He's just taking a vacation uh, this week. But I am pleased to be joined by Mark Stein. He's been covering the NBA for a long time. Currently 
over at Substack. Subscribe, sign up for his uh, daily newsletter. It is an excellent read uh, every single day. Mark, thanks for joining me, man. Hojo Beck just got there. He's already on vacation. That's what I'm saying. I mean, you, you said it, not me. So I, I'm, I'm happy to pig pile on him. Um, he's, you know, just a vac- vacation hound. All right. Just gobbling up vacation days left and right. I mean, we're still in the off season, right? Like we're still, we're still on the clock. Do you realize by the way, where, where we were a year ago, man? Ooh, the bubble. Yes. You and I sitting crossing in, um... paths, same hideout, same stalking spots. Well, we had the right idea though. Like everyone going to games, like what are you doing? I mean, I guess there's some value in watching these teams play, but I would much rather see, you know, five or six. At one point there were like 10 teams practicing in an afternoon in that one spot. Like I'd rather hang out there and, you know, get in there and talk to guys afterwards or even, you know, executives that are just hanging out in the hallway a little bit. We know that happened too. Hey, look, compared to the access that we have now, that was dreamlike. Correct. Yes. <laughs> Any concerns about access in the bubble were quickly uh, uh, dissolved. But I, a lot of stuff I want to get into with you, Mark. And I want to start with USA Basketball. You wrote about this uh, on Monday uh, in your uh, newsletter. And, you know, we're not kind of turning the page a little bit, right? Like the future of USA Basketball. Four-time defending champion gold medalist. Four-time gold medalist. And now we start wondering about what the roster is going to look like in 2024, what the head, who the head coach is going to be in 2024. Um, you know, what you wrote about with Steph Curry and some of the old guard guys that, that are potentially going to be there. I mean, what do you think the roster might look like in three years? Well, the reason I wanted to write about Steph, because I kind of felt like there was this perception that he had passed up his last chance to go, that this was the last chance. And he decided that he's going to take this summer to be with his family and to rest because this season was obviously so grueling for him. I mean, he, he had to carry that Warriors offense like never before, no Clay Thompson. And I just, I found that comical. I mean, as Steve Kerr said, Steph, you know, Steve Kerr says, Steph Curry is the greatest shooter who ever lived. Perhaps we can debate that, but he's the greatest shooter in the game. If he wants to be there in 2024, there will be a spot for him. Steph Curry played on the 2010 and 2014 World Cup teams that didn't come anywhere close to being able to field a full roster. He's got so much equity built up with the program. If he wants to play, he will be there in 2024 at age 36. And let's face it, I think Steve Kerr has to be one of the prime candidates to take over for Greg Popovich. I would say it's probably Kerr and Eric Spolster at the top of that list. Popovich has had this lifelong, you know, just nothing but one bad Team USA incident after another. He finally gets to go out on a high. They get him the gold medal after all kinds of criticism and skepticism. I don't think Greg Popovich is coming back to the Team USA bench. So they're certainly going to need a new coach. I think it's a little too early to, to make a lot of roster projections. But I just think if Steph wants to be there in 2024, he will be there. Well, let's stick with the coach for a second. Uh, you're right. I mean, at most it would be shocking, really, if Pop is back at age, what, 75 in 2024. That seems uh, a little tough to believe. Uh, and I think you're right as well. Like Steve Kerr and Eric Spolstra, who kind of just popped onto the USA basketball scene this summer, had not done really anything with the USA basketball program prior to this summer, worked with the U.S. select team in Vegas, which 
at least to me, Mark, suggested that he may be rising in the minds of USA basketball executives. Yeah, no question. I think he had, you know, look, you know, Steve Kerr's had tons of success in Golden State. Eric Spolster has got the longevity. I mean, next to Pop, uh, you know, and now that Rick Carlisle's gone to Indiana, Eric Spolster is number two in continuous run with one franchise, uh, has won championships. Now he's involved in the USAB program by them bringing him in to work with the select team. So that's just kind of my, look, I've covered USAB for a long time, but I was not around them this, you know, I was not in Vegas for their mini camp. I didn't make the Olympics. I've done the last two Olympics and I did the last uh, world cup, basically from 2012 through 2016, I was there everywhere they went, but I haven't been, and I was in China as well in 2019, but I, I wasn't around them this summer. So this is more kind of my read rather than firm reporting, but just as a long time observer of the program, I just have to think the list would likely start with, with Kerr and Spo, especially because um, your guy, Brad Stevens has moved out of coaching now as well as, mm-hmm. as an executive. I think Brad might've been in the mix as well. So that's, that's, uh, that, that's where I would start it. Yeah. And, I think one of the advantages Spolster may have would be if he were willing to commit to multiple cycles as the head coach. I mean, he's a guy in his early 50s, looks and kind of operates like he's in his early 40s. I mean, he's um, he's got that youth on his side in this particular circumstance. And I think that's important for USA basketball. Not to say they can't win with a changing of a coach every four years. They just proved that they can, going from Mike Krzyzewski in 2016 to Greg Popovich in 2020. But I I think anytime you can establish continuity within this USA basketball program, you should jump at it. And if if Spo says, I'll do at least two cycles with USAB, I I think that would be appealing to a Grant Hill. And look, even if it's only one, because I think, you know, there was, you know, Mike Krzyzewski was there from basically 20, from 2006 through 2016. So he did it for a whole decade multiple Olympics, multiple tournaments. And, you know, there have been the kind of whispers that that Pop himself was shocked that it was such a long run for Coach K mm-hmm. and that Jerry Colangelo didn't want to make a change. Um, so that's, I think, one of the questions going forward. Is USA Basketball going to go back to, is it just one cycle at a time and we're going to rotate this position more? But look, even if it's only one cycle, whoever is the next coach is coaching the 2023 Worlds first in the Philippines and then 2024 Olympics in Paris. So whoever does it next is going to at least do two major tournaments. And I think look as much trouble as they had getting players on this roster and certainly the pandemic and two crazy seasons in a row were factors. But I mean, you, you know how this works in 2023, it's not going to be a star laden team. Everyone who wants to play is going to want to be there at the Olympics in 2024 and not necessarily in 2023. So that's another issue for Grant Hill now kind of, replacing Jerry Colangelo. Can he get guys to commit for two tournaments in a row? You know, it's funny. I was having kind of this discussion with an NBA journal manager recently. And one thing he said to me was like, I wouldn't want to send my star player to go play for Eric Spolster. Not because it won't be a great experience, but because it would be a great experience because, you know, a guy would go over there, play under Spolstra and see how good he is. And, you know, it would all of a sudden become like a recruiting ship for Miami to have Spolstra, in addition to being in Miami, in addition to being a successful team, to have a coach that player X, whoever that may be, have a positive experience with him. So, you know, that's kind of the game within the game, I think, for USA basketball as well. 
both of those guys, I think, would certainly, if it's Kerr or Spolstra, potentially benefits the down-the-road recruiting benefits, no question. I mean, that's a big appeal to the job. And that's one reason, you know, Coach K did it for so long. And, you know, he was able to build these amazing relationships with so many players because he's not affiliated to anyone. Mm-hmm. And then they bring in Pop, and there was a lot of thinking when Pop was the next choice that guys are going to want to play for him. I think even LeBron, like Le- playing in these Olympics was not really an option for LeBron at this stage. But I do think there was part of LeBron that said, man, I would like to play for Pop at least once. And for him, that chance is, is now gone. Yeah, no question. Last thing on this Olympic team, uh, one of the successes that Colangelo had early on was getting guys to commit for Three years, basically, to be part of the team in 06, 07, then going on to 08. I think that had huge value for that group of younger players to be part of of three cycles, really, with that group. I think those days are gone. Uh, You know, I mean, because obviously you're not going to get that kind of commitment from a Durant or a Steph Curry. But, you know, is there more value in trying to get these commitments from Zion Williamson and Devin Booker we saw on this team, Jason Tatum who we saw on this team? They don't have to do what they did in 2006 where they really, you know, because of the bronze medal, they had to work their way kind of back into that mix. But are we, are those days just gone, Mark, where guys are going to be willing to commit for multiple years? I I do kind of think they're gone. And I think one of the factors is contracts are shorter. Mm -hmm. So guys are getting into free agency faster. And if it's not one year, it's the next year that a guy's a free agent and, and doesn't want to play to mess with their free agent status. So it is harder. I mean, ideally, you. I mean, that's the thing. Ideally, when Grant Hill starts recruit, recruiting guys for this next cycle, he's going to want, you know, play 23 and 24, but it's just, it's a difficult sell. And what are you going to do if Star X says, I'm only playing in the Olympics? You're going to take him because you, I mean, the the criticism, it just ramps up every single Olympics. I mean, this team was hammered losing two exhibition games, losing its Olympic opener against France. This team was hammered. When they win, the praise is just like, eh, you know, it's a little bit of praise, but it's end of the world time when they lose a game, when they lose an exhibition game. So it's it. the sell is only getting harder, I think, for USAB to convince guys to do this. You know, it, it's, you know, they, they win gold, but it, it's not, I, I watched them win this entire tournament and as impressive as it was to see the way some of these guys performed. It's like, did Kevin Durant just kind of save you? Like, did he pull your fat out of the fire because he's Kevin Durant and he's probably the best player in the entire world? If that's the case, like, maybe this program does need some some retooling a little bit because Kevin Durant's not going to be around every single year to save a team. Well, look, what and, and one forecast that I kind of wish I could have back now, you know, after, after 2016, because obviously Spain is their roster's getting older. And one of the true mysteries to me in international basketball, something I've never figured out, Argentina just had the golden generation with Manu and Scola and, and, and Berto, all, all, all these guys, you know, they, they, they just had the great run. But it never really, it never really led to, I mean, Argentina is still good, but it's just not the same. Um, it, they, they haven't, you know, then we, we don't, we don't necessarily see a next Manu. And I just thought that they would have, 
So coming into these Olympics, I actually thought that the gap would widen. But no, I mean, France has stepped into that Spain void now. You know, France really is the new power, emerging power in Europe. And obviously, Luca, you know, he he makes Slovenia so dangerous. And so really, when you looked at it, quarter semifinals, having to play, you know, savvy Spain in the quarters and then Australia and then France to win it, that, that's probably as hard a run to the gold medal as the U S has ever faced in the NBA era. So it's not getting any easier. It really isn't. Yeah. Watch out for Slovenia in years to come. Luca's obviously the engine of that team, but they got some good players on that group. I'm curious to see if, you know, Luca winds up uh, helping to produce another generation of Slovenian stars down the line uh, as well. Cause uh, they're, they could be sneaky good in the next, uh, the next uh, couple of cycles. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER terms and conditions apply there are some things that are too good to keep a secret like how your amex platinum card helps you have the perfect trip i'd like to check into the centurion lounge or how it seems like you always get those hard to snag tables Ooh, yum and how you get the most out of select can't miss events with access to the centurion lounge resi priority notified and amex card member benefits at select events You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If if you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Um, all right, I want to turn to NBA free agency, which is largely wrapped up. Some uh, players still on the move. But the biggest guy kind of still out there, Mark, is Dennis Schroeder, who, as we all know by now, turned down a contract extension with the Lakers uh, at midseason, was looking for a big deal this offseason. That deal has not materialized. What do you make of Dennis Schroeder still being out there looking for a team? I can't really say that I'm surprised. I I just frankly never understood. 
I mean, turning down the $84 million extension from the Lakers, the talk that, let's be honest, I, I haven't heard Dennis Schroeder say this, but, you know, I think it was the German basketball official who kind of said on Schroeder's behalf when Schroeder wasn't going to play for Germany this summer that, you know, Dennis has a hundred million, hundred plus million contract to go sign. I, I just don't know where that forecast came and it's become a nightmare for him, an absolute nightmare where basically almost all the cap space has gone as the, at this point. It, it sounds like the Celtics are at least considering trying to sign him to a bargain deal. If it's not that, does Oklahoma City decide, you know what, let's give Schroeder one year of some cap space to just create a trade chip out of him and the, the Thunder no Schroeder and have had him there. And if they bring him in for a year, it's not going to hugely change either their financial bottom line or their future aspirations or how this season's team does. So I could see the thunder doing that, just bringing him in on a year. And I, you know, that's, that's kind of a theory that another team shared mm-hmm. with me. But other than that, man, I, I mean, I, I don't know what, what he does or where he goes. I mean, yeah, the, the, the thunder, I don't know. I've heard that too, but like Oklahoma City's in a far different position. Than they were a couple of years ago when Schroeder was there and you know, it, the the decision to buy out Kemba Walker, which the Thunder never do. They don't buy guys out. Like, to buy Kemba out at whatever dollar figure it ultimately was, you know, that in part told me that they want to clear as many minutes as possible for their young players at those guard spots. And you know, Kemba, if nothing else, is a pretty good soldier, you know, a good teammate, all those things. Uh, I, I don't know that they want to, that it makes sense to bring Schroeder back into that mix, especially when... I mean, you kind of know Schroeder all next season on a one-year deal, and there's going to be part of him that's going to be playing for another contract and trying to to get the best possible deal. Now, the Celtics make a lot of sense to me because Boston right now, if the season started today, like their starting backcourt is, what, Marcus Smart and Peyton Pritchard? You know, Marcus Smart and Jason uh, or Josh Richardson? Like, yeah, that, that needs some offensive punch. Like, that's a team with a backcourt that doesn't have – a lot of firepower and it also doesn't have a third score like you've got Jason Tatum who is a blossoming superstar you've got Jalen Brown who coming off an all-star scene so you got two guys that can score but you need that third guy a consistent guy and Smart's probably not that guy Al Horford at this stage is not that guy then you're counting on one of your young guys I mean we've done this before with Boston whether it's Aaron Neesmith or Romeo Langford and Pritchard I don't know if like the Celtics aren't championship contenders anyway. Don't sleep on Yam Madar, my guy Yam yeah. Madar. Uh, I watched this. I watched this summer league game on Sunday. He's got a nice Surprise. look. He he's got a nice little game to him. He's got a nice little game to him. I'll give him that. Uh, but you're also not counting on him either to come in and be the third scorer. So I don't know, Schroeder. I understand it would be a major financial concession for Schroeder to go to Boston. I think it's just like that six million exception if they just try to sign him outright. But if if he's looking for a chance to contribute to a winner, that looks like one of his last opportunities. And look, I, when I throw out the Oklahoma City theory, that's more, I'm looking at it from the shrewder perspective of just, man, yeah. just can you get a one-year deal at a decent number just to get back a fraction of what you turned down? Because it's got, he's going to have to live with this. I mean, mm-hmm. the, you know, take the $84 million and just make the Lakers trade you after that. You know, don't turn down... 84 million. I mean, that's the, you know, look, it's Schroeder's decision. Uh, you know, I, people, whether they feel sorry for him or not, you know, that's, that's a personal decision everybody has. And obviously there were, there was plenty of tension in Lakerland last season. So I don't know how much sympathy will actually be coming his way, but 
I mean, to go to Boston, I mean, look, you're right. From a role perspective, it's probably the best chance for him to try to rebuild some value, to go to the Celtics on a bargain deal, have a good season or two, and try to get back in the free agent market. But to just like, just hypothetically, a two year, $12 million deal after what was on the table, it's just wow. That's that is hard to hard to picture. Do you, you know, for a while there was a negative perception around Schroeder, bad attitude, stuff like that. I haven't heard too much of that over the last couple of years. I thought he, in a way, rebuilt his reputation in Oklahoma City, where I thought he should have been sixth man of the year. Didn't win, but was in the top three. Uh, then he goes to the Lakers. It doesn't end well with the Lakers, but I think people have to remember Schroeder was coming off a. COVID illness, like, and guys don't come back, you know, at full steam right after come after uh, dealing with COVID. We see we have countless examples of that uh, last season. So I, I didn't think last year was a terrible one for him either. It just you, you're right. It, it, what it boils down to is you're right. If a four year, eighty four million dollar deal is on the table, you got to take it. I mean, it, it's such an unless you are sure that Team X is out there and they are going to be willing to pay you, which we've seen before, I guess. You got to take that money because it was way too saturated a point guard market mark uh, a mark for him to to just walk away from that type of deal. But, but and not only that, I mean, eighty four mil is not that far away from a hundred mil. It's not like yeah. the Lakers were offering a fifty million dollar extension and he was looking to double it. I mean, if you can get eighty four mil to that eighty four mil now, and you might get you you think you can get a hundred mil two months later. I'm probably taking the eighty four mil now. It's. 20 plus million dollars a year. Like how many non all-stars are getting 20 plus million dollars per and, year? And by I far just, the best contract of his career, it would have been easily, so. easily. So we'll see. Um, I do think wherever he goes, it will probably be on a, you know, one plus one type of thing where he tries to rebuild himself and get into free agency next summer. Let me keep it with the Lakers though. Uh, complete overhaul with this team. You see like, you know, half a dozen new guys uh, on the roster. Now they brought in some shooters, Mark, in the last week or so, you know, veterans, guys like Kent Bazemore, Wayne Ellington, um, certainly Trevor Reza in that mix. Uh, what are the Lakers right now? Do you look at the Lakers as saying that is once again, a top four team or top two team, whatever it is in the Western conference, or I mean, there are more questions than answers right now with LA. Well, here's the good news, I think, for the Lakers. The West is going to be weaker. And I put I threw this out last week. And I think top to bottom for the first, you know, you and I have both been doing this for just about the same amount of time. For the, you know, for for the first, you know, since Jordan's second retirement in Chicago in 1998, pretty much every season since the West has been the better conference. And look, Eastern Conference teams winning the championship doesn't mean that the East is a better conference top to bottom. I think. Last check, the West has had the better head-to-head record in 21 of the last 22 seasons. This is a season that I think we go into it, and look, it is partially injury-aided. The Clippers are not going to have Kawhi, and the Nuggets are not going to have Jamal Murray, and those are factors. But top to bottom, one to eight, the East is going to be better than the West. I think that's a fair forecast to make. And so that's the good news for the Lakers. I mean, Phoenix is going to keep their group pretty much together, but – the Lakers have a chance to win the West with, with what they have. But I saying that I was still in the camp. I thought Buddy Heald was a better fit. I, I think they could have made a lot of the same moves doing it that way. They decided to go the Westbrook route. And, and I, I felt, I felt last season, like I was a Westbrook defender. I felt like he didn't get nearly enough 
appreciation for not just the triple-double run, but Washington getting off the mat and digging from as far out of the hole that they were in just, just to make the playoffs. But Westbrook with this Laker group that already has shooting issues, I, I, I'm a skeptic. I agree on the Buddy Heald part of it. You know, Beck and I discussed this a little bit last week. Um, you know, one executive or one coach should say told me like, you know, what shooter has not thrived off of LeBron James? Like, go through LeBron's history. Like, guys come in with a shooting skill. They generally have a lot of success. Hell, Kyle Korver probably extended his career by two years, maybe three years, playing those last couple in Cleveland before he went on to a couple other stops. Like, it's just a good place to be, being a shooter, playing opposite LeBron James. He finds you, you get open looks, and Buddy Heald, for all of his flaws, is still a close to 40% three-point shooter consistently. Like, the last four years, been consistently right around 40% from three. So I I didn't get that at all. Not to mention, as far as I know, um, they didn't have to give up that first-round pick to get Buddy Heald. So it, it could have given you some maneuverability elsewhere, too, to potentially uh, make another deal uh, with yeah, some but, of yeah, those. Buddy Heald, Buddy Heald would shoot 45% from threes playing with LeBron and AD. Yeah, and, and, and look, he's never been on a winner either. So, like, you know, put him on a winner, maybe that brings a little more out of him. But, you know, I think another big part of this is, um, and I wrote about this Friday, and then the Lakers settled it by Friday. And I, I couldn't believe that Vogel didn't have an extension. Yeah, And because he has, this is going to be a really difficult team to coach. And, you know, the Lakers did speak to Scotty Brooks, and there was a chance that Scotty Brooks was going to wind up on that staff. The Lakers ended up not having a spot. Scotty Brooks goes to Portland, and then the Lakers end up with Westbrook. Would have been really, really good for Frank Vogel had Scott Brooks ended up on that staff as, you know, LeBron and AD, that's demanding enough. And now you're bringing Westbrook into that mix. That's a lot for a coach to have to deal with. But again, no one's feeling sorry for the Lakers. And they they have their, their minimum signings and they're, you know, filling out the bench, getting guys like Kendrick Nunn and, and Malik Monk on bargain deals. I mean, they, they've made some nice moves and, uh, I think you'd have to say LA and Phoenix are at the top of the West if we're forecasting it now. Yeah, I'm a little less bullish about Malik Monk. It just, I mean, I understand like he's a 40% three-point shooter and he's young and athletic and all those things. It just raises maybe a red flag when Charlotte doesn't, you know, give you a qualifying offer like that. Charlotte team that you think he'd fit into what they're trying to do. Um, but, you know, it's fine. Like it's a, it's a flyer. They're not paying anything for him. Um, I, I just, you know, you're right. This could be, this will be a challenging year for Vogel because a lot of the defensive weapons that he's had the last two seasons, they're gone. He's going to have to have tough conversations if they haven't already happened with Anthony Davis and LeBron James about playing different positions, about being, you know, one spot up in that front court. Uh, and because otherwise, I don't know how you play out there. I, I agree with you. I've always been a Westbrook defender. I, excuse me. I believe that. You know, his ability to elevate a lesser team is really remarkable. Like that Oklahoma City team, the first year without Kevin Durant, unbelievable play. The, the MVP year, Westbrook was great. I also don't think, Mark, he's as intractable as some people say. Like he only plays one way. I think in Houston, he did adjust his style to play off of James Harden. Unfortunately, he's never going to be a spot-up shooter. So there's only so much he can do. But I think he did make some concessions. I think he did make some concessions in Washington, playing alongside Bradley Beal. And to your point, 
Yeah, he was as big a reason as any at that team rallied over the final month to get into the playoffs. So I think there, there's a winner, a real winner inside Russell Westbrook. It's just that if you are not better than a 30% three-point shooter, good teams with good defensive strategies are going to find a way to defend you. So the only solution to that, if it is one, is to have AD spend more time than ever at five, LeBron spend more time than ever at four, and hope that some combination of Monk, Bazemore, Ellington, Ariza, what have you, they turn into reliable shooting options at the two and the three. Yeah, look, Russ is going to have to prove it. There's going to be skepticism, and he's going, as amazing as this is to say, given how big a profile he already has, there's going to be a microscope on him like never before going to the Lakers. Um, But, you know, you met, you know, I think one of the reasons this appealed to the Lakers so much was that idea that when LeBron and AD are either injured or not playing, that Russ can carry this team and lead this group and make sure they don't finish with a seventh seed again. Because when you want to talk about what didn't work with Schroeder and Montrez Harrell, when, when those, you know, they weren't able to elevate the Lakers to, to a, a home court advantage level when LeBron and AD went down. Maybe that's too much to ask. Maybe that's not fair, but the reality is that's what the Lakers needed and they didn't get it. I think with Westbrook, there's a better chance that they're going to be able to sustain themselves when they don't have LeBron and AD. Yeah, I agree with that. I think Westbrook in those situations will be able to sneak you a couple of wins you weren't expecting because of his ability to to do stuff like that. That's definitely a clear advantage uh, for Russ. A couple more things I want to hit you on. Um, you're down there in the Dallas area. Uh, are the Mavericks going to wind up with Goran Dragic? We know that Toronto, they don't really need Goran Dragic. That's not, you know, that's, they're going in a different direction. I think Dragic probably wants to, a chance to win as well. I think he'd love a chance to play alongside Luka Doncic. Um, do you see a deal for Dragic coming together between the Mavericks and the Raptors? I think it's going to be tough. They've already tried based on everything I've been told. Toronto's been resistant to it. Um, now, Dragic has come out with some comments in Slovenia today that basically suggested that he's not exactly super excited to be headed there and wants to go somewhere else. So we'll see if that has any kind of impact on the trade here. But look, I think the Raptors, they see Dragic as a very tradable guy who they can get assets for that they like or get financial relief you know the Mavs are not flush with draft picks to throw into a trade after the Porzingis deal so uh, Dallas has already tried to get him and hasn't been able to dislodge him I think everybody knows if Dragic ends up on the free agent market Dallas is going to zoom to the top of his list the chance to play alongside Luka Doncic the chance to reunite you know Igor Kokoshkov the former Suns head coach is going to be on this Dallas coaching staff next to Jason Kidd. Dallas is the natural landing spot, but the Mavs just don't have an easy trade to make for him. Yes, they could send Dwight Powell and X to Toronto, but do the Raptors want to take in Dwight Powell's contract? Can the Mavericks put enough draft sweeteners with it? Do they have any way to make that deal more exciting for the Raptors? Or are the Raptors going to, you know, the Raptors, it probably makes more sense for them to keep Dragic and try to find a trade that they like better I mean, there's everything I hear. There's no way Toronto's going to buy him out. Why would they? I mean, he is he is a trade chip, and in this sign and trade deal for Lowry, all they got was Dragic and Precious Achua. They didn't get any draft compensation for Miami. 
Now, Achua is a recent first-round pick, so mm. obviously from everything I've heard, that's a player Toronto was really excited to get, but they surely think they could turn Dragic into more. So eventually, do I see Dragic in Dallas? Yeah, but how long is that going to take? Yeah, I was told pretty strongly as well they're not buying out Goran Dragic. That's just not going to happen. And to your, you're right. Why would they? Like, you know, he'll, he'll probably ultimately report. He may grumble when he does it, but you know, they a few months with the Raptors, uh, I think the Raptors will deal with that if it means they can get something of substance they like back in return. And it, look, Dragic can still play. Like, you know, there's a somewhat reasonable argument to be made about how much better Miami got with the Kyle Lowry Dragic slot. I think they got better, but I mean, you got you're talking about a pretty reliable offensive player in Dragic who has a good relationship with Jimmy Butler, good relationship with that team. So. That's a valuable player. And, you know, if you're Dallas and you want to be in that mix, uh, I think we both agree Luka needs some help down there and Dragic would be that guy. No question. And look, that that was their priority to get a secondary ball handler. Lowry was at the top of their list. Dragic is someone they're very interested in. But, you know, what what the Mavs weren't going to do was just say, okay, we didn't get Lowry, so now let's try to get in the Dinwiddie sweepstakes. Let's, let's just give Dennis Schroeder whatever we have left. They want to upgrade there, but they don't want to just throw money at at anybody they can get. They want to be, want to be more judicious about it. And the reality is like for Dallas, I mean, their biggest, they got to get Porzingis back to something resembling his bubble level of production. And they got to get Luca and Porzingis in some level of partnership that it just, it, it hasn't been there. That was the Mavs big move. The Mavs know that they're not a team that hits that finds gold in free agency often. They traded for Porzingis to get ahead of that, to get Porzingis before he made it to to restricted free agency. And at this point, it's a move that hasn't worked. So I think that's really Jason Kidd's number one task as the coach of this team to get with Doncic and get with Porzingis and see if he can make a partnership out of these guys because Porzingis just doesn't have trade value right now. And the Mavericks are in Slovenia as we speak. They're going to make they're going to make a big formal production out of this two hundred plus million contract extension that Luke is going to get. But as I reported last week, from there, Jason Kidd is going to Latvia to continue face to face talks with Porzingis. Porzingis has already been in Dallas some this summer, and Kidd knows this can't. You know, they know what they have in Luca. They've got to get Porzingis on the road to recovery here. Yeah, uh, no question. That's going to be a team to watch all season long. Uh, Portland, are you surprised that they've done nothing? Because this was, you know, I mean, a couple of weeks, three weeks, whenever it was, um, you know, Damian Lillard basically put them on the spot, said, we need to get better. This roster is not good enough. I'm paraphrasing, but that's kind of what he said during one of his USA Basketball uh, press conferences. And all Portland really did was kind of swap out backup centers. And I mean, that's really it at this point with the trailblazers um any surprise i know they were limited yeah. with flexibility but what are your what's your reaction to that it's both it is a surprise because they're under so much pressure but you said it i mean they just don't have the wherewithal to make splashy moves unless i mean the only way to me that they're really going to be able to change that roster is trading cj mccollum which is just something that they for years neil olshay has resisted they that's don't his guy do it don't want to break those guys up And so is it going to come to the point 
what what is it going to take for them to either trade CJ or for Dame to go to them firmly and say, I want to move on? I mean, that's really the question. And I don't know the answer. I don't know how long it takes before any of either of those positions change. It's like they're almost daring Damian Lillard to to do that. You know, I mean, they they didn't do anything. They weren't really I, I don't know how aggressive they were on trade fronts, but it's not like they have assets to deal like there's nobody clamoring for Yusuf Nurkic right now. You know, Robert Covington is not uh, making general managers salivate. C.J. McCollum, who could still, in the right deal, bring back a real package. I mean, C.J. McCollum never been an all-star, but he's now the new Mike Conley, like the best player never. I do wonder if they've waited too long, but look, I yeah. think from I think Philly, Philly's waiting it out. Philly doesn't want C.J. McCollum. They want Dame, and Philly's yeah. going to wait to see if something bends there, something breaks there, and Portland says, okay, we'll entertain this. It hasn't happened yet, but I think that's what the Sixers are waiting for. Yeah, and I don't know if you, I mean, you don't get better with like a some combination of Marcus Smart and other pieces the Celtics can put in the mix that don't include Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. You, you'd really have to, tra- if you were going to make that trade with McCollum, you'd probably have to commit to be dealing Lillard too, because then you'd be talking about taking on some of the Celtics young guys and seeing if they can play, but I don't know. I, I think that's a good point. They might have waited too long uh, to to deal McCollum to get something back significant uh, in return. Last thing for you. Uh, are we bullish on Chicago now? I don't know what to make of Chicago. I really don't. Like, that. They're, like they make all these moves. They spend all this money. They've got a pretty good-looking starting lineup. But then, Mark, as I sit there and I start to kind of make out my preliminary standings in the Eastern Conference, I've still got them, you know, in the back half of the conference playoff standings with the possibility that like they're one injury away from, you know, being in the play in mix or worse at that point. I mean, what, what do you make of all the deals the bulls made, which includes the recent one, DeMar DeRozan going there via sign and trade. Yeah. Look, I think when you act, when you study the actual moves and really think about how these pieces are going to fit together, like we probably should be having a Laker reaction to this. Like, We shouldn't be all that excited about it. But the Bulls have for so long been synonymous with inaction and waiting. And it's like they've gone so bold that I just find myself wanting to give it a chance because I can't, you know, I I mean, it feels like it's been more than a decade that we've been waiting for Chicago to take these big swings. And, and look, you're absolutely right. I mean, can, can, can DeRozan play with Lonzo Ball and Zach Levine? Can the three of them work together defensively? You know, Caruso presumably slotted for an off-the-bench role. Is he going to be able to have enough of an impact defensively coming off the bench to make up for the other defensive shortcomings that this group has? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of with you that, like, I'm, I want to be optimistic about it. But again, that it, the East is tougher. I mean, Atlanta, mm. Atlanta made some quiet little nice upgrades here. I mean, they're I don't think they're going anywhere. The Knicks getting Kemba on a bargain deal, you know, you look at it completely differently. I think the reason Oklahoma City bought Kemba out was because they knew they couldn't trade him. They were not going to be able to trade a contract with two years and 74 mil on it. There just was not going to be another option. So I think that's really why they can send it to the buyout, but for the Knicks to get Kemba on a bargain deal, I think you have to be optimistic about that from the Knicks perspective. So I don't know that the Knicks are going to finish fourth again, but I don't think they're falling all the way out of the top eight. 
you know, they made some nice moves. I think the Celtics you expect are going to be better. So yeah, I mean, Chicago isn't guaranteed anything, but I feel like their fans have been waiting for so long. I don't want to be, let's let Casey Johnson do it. I don't want to be the guy who, (laughs) I don't want to be the guy who says, I hate the fit because they're finally, they're finally, they're finally swinging big. Arturis Karnasovic clearly believes that building a winning culture is important. And I think it was underscored when that stat went around during USA basketball about Zach Levine having the first four game winning streak since his days at UCLA, which is remarkable. Like he's played how many years in the NBA for a couple of different teams and he's never had a four game winning streak. And he's coming up on a contract extension. And sure, you can say like the Bulls just max him out and he'll take it. Maybe he would, but I think showing him that you're committed to winning uh, will grease the skids so to speak, with with something like that. But I like I don't know how they defend. Like they're not they're just not a very good like Lonzo's pretty good, but you know, Vucevic is not some kind of defensive stopper. You no, know, Thad Young is not there. Like, I mean there's there's just a lot of of questions, especially defensively about that team that I I just can't can't wrap my head around yet, Mark. <laughs> just not all the way there. No, like so. I said, I'm I'm giving them an irrational and somewhat indefensible pass because I <laughs> like that they've gone for it. But yeah. you can definitely question. Where well, these this is also, move. by the way, this is also kind of the reason I like going to summer league. So you could just like walk up to someone in the Bulls front office and be like, please explain to me this. Like, just tell me, you know, I'm not going to write it, but just tell me what you're thinking here. Like, and why this makes sense for you. And then maybe they can sell you. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes you, you turn out to be right wondering uh, if this uh, fit doesn't mix. Uh, Mark, terrific stuff. Uh, as always, check out Mark's newsletter. You can subscribe over at his Twitter account, at The Stein Lines. Terrific read every single day. Thanks for joining me, man. Capably filling in for one Howard Beck. The bar wasn't that high. When we come back, my conversation with Monty McCutcheon. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. All right, Monty McCutcheon is here, Vice President of Referee Development and Training. There will be some changes beginning next season when it comes to how games are officiated. We're going to see some of those changes start to take shape, start to see some of the uh, game called maybe a little bit differently beginning at the Summer League in Las Vegas, which is taking place right now out in Nevada. And Monty joins me here on the show. Monty, let me first say... uh, no, I haven't seen him without the beard in a while. How long has that been been off the face? Uh, since I went on TV uh, with the beard. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, not everyone loved the beard quite as much as I did. In in the Twitter sphere, uh, the beard did not receive the, as high a, as reviews as it did in the mirror. Did you get a, Did you get a phone call from Mike Bass saying, you know, Monty, I think it might be a. You know. But just in general, I think my pandemic beard had run its course. And although I loved it, it was time to move on back to the real world as we're all doing right now. Oh, you still are the sharpest bespectacled guy that uh, that I know with the, uh, the the glasses. So at least you got that u- unique aspect to you uh, as well. Uh, Monty, just if you could kind of walk me through what we're going to see called differently in these games beginning uh, at the Summer League. Well, you know, it's interesting because you're asking a question about specifics, but there's a there's a philosophical underlying foundation to that. Um, our players are the best players in the world, as we all know. And I, I personally think they're the best athletes in the world, although I'm biased because I love our players so much. Um, they, they really work at their craft. And I don't think people understand because of their natural gifts how hard our players work to innovate the game. We have sets of rules that are driven by and style of play that are driven by many factors. Analytics has driven a style of play. We now know that three points is worth more than two points, oddly enough, and that it's opened up the game into a more perimeter game. When I first came into the league, Chris, the game was played 90% from the free throw line down to the baseline. All our picks were on the block. We had all our pin downs and all our floppies were run down on the block. And now all of the the screens that we see are sheer screens above the free throw line. We have much more movement. And the idea is is to get free and open space. And what that drives is, is this idea that in playing in open space, our players have innovated the rules. The same set of rules are now being played somewhat differently. And we realize that players are really driving this idea of what is the most efficient form of scoring. And they know that corner threes, layups, 
and free throws are the most efficient forms of scoring that's been drilled into our league. And as such, the innovators of our league, some of our players have taken our rules and really one of example of that is two steps to the basket. When you and I were young, two steps to the basket meant a layup. Now two steps can mean a step back three. And that means the rule states two steps. And so that's one way our players have innovated the game. They've also gotten to where they are very clever with how to put defensive players in compromising positions as the rules are interpreted currently. And what that's led to is an unbalance to our league in which offensive players have a little more of an advantageous position to be in by trying to play the game instead of just playing the game, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so what we wanted and what not we in the office, but the competition committee wanted, which of course, as your listeners know, is our owners, our players, our general managers, um, our, and our coaches have a committee in which they steer the, the way the game is played to a more equitable balance when they think, see things starting to get out of balance. And right now we see a little unbalance between offensive ability to compete and defensive abilities to compete. And we always want that to be as close to 50-50 as possible. And so as such, we started to see that there were a lot of, of non-basketball um, moves that led to this idea in which people were just trying to get to the free throw line instead of playing the game. And these non-basketball moves have a, a certain syntax to them. It can be an abnormal launch angle. It can be veering off a, a normal path to the basket in which you are you have a line to the basket and you immediately jump hard to the right or hard to the left. Or maybe you've beaten your defender and you jump hard backwards instead of taking the little floater that is there for you to take. And so what the competition committee came up with was this idea that we wanted normal basketball plays to be rewarded. And so what referees are going to look for in the summer league as the starting point and then moving into the 2021 and 2022 seasons are these indicators that are not normal play. And that would be abnormal launch angles, veering off path, kicking out sideways or forward in an, in an abnormal way that leads to contact that would normally not otherwise be you know adjudicated and so we're hopeful that that will that interpretation of the rules will allow us to get back to a more balanced view of what competition looks like the nba is great because it allows an equal competition between our great defensive teams who style their league or their their team and their schematic around strong defensive principles then we have teams that have strong offensive principles and we want to make sure that both of those those schematic themes that our teams may pursue based on their personnel have equal opportunities to to compete. Was there something that you or people in the office or on the competition committee saw happening this past season in particular? Because this conversation's been ongoing, right? Like, you know, this is not just, oh, well, it's just this past season we saw guys doing what you're talking about. It's been happening for years now. Was there something about this past season that made this decision to, to make this, this adjustment uh, timely? 
Yeah, I think that, that those things are very organic. And I'll, I'll refer back to the two-step step back. When that was first done, everyone was complaining it was a travel, <laughs> right? Because it wasn't something that our that our our, our visual syntax had been able to, to – but when we went in and looked at the rule, there's nothing that says it has to be forward or in a layup. And so we see that innovation. And when when one player does something innovatively – and it's fair, then we don't worry about it, you know, and it's fair, like the step back. But look at from when the step back came in to how many players are doing it now. Now, that's an example of a really good innovative play that has no negativity to it. But when we see one or two players three, four, five years ago starting to, to do these abnormal launch angles – then you you your ears pick up or your eyes pick up and it starts to gain some attention from our coaches and our players and our general managers and our owners in the competition committee cycle. But as it has organically grown, we realize that it's placing uh, across our 450 plus players, it's placing an imbalance to that thing, those things that I referenced before, that competition. We are a league of competition. And what our fans love is seeing the, the grit and grind, uh, to borrow a phrase from Memphis, of course, but to that, that, that grit that our players show that exposes their hard work. And when we can see that getting out of balance, then the competition committee charges us as the league office and my department specifically that we need to address this. And this year was the year that I think that it, it sort of reached that fulcrum point, that critical mass, that it was obvious that we wanted defensive teams to be able to compete. Is it your hope? And, and I'm sure I know this is all kind of happening organically, but is it your hope that free throw attempts come down? Is that part of the objective with this? No, I don't think that, that we don't tend to look at things in terms of, of the, the we look at data, of course, that helps drive our thought process. But I don't think we're ever concerned with, okay, we, we don't want 24 free throws a game per team. I, I, that never has once come up that I'm aware of. What we want to make sure is that the integrity of those quote unquote 24 free throws is done through natural play and through natural flow of play. Because the flow of play is something that our fans really look to as something that's really important to their enjoyment and to the, to the idea of competition. It's not finagling a rule. It's playing within the rules through your ability. And I think that to some degree, we're much more concerned with the style of play and the legitimacy of play along those lines of what normal basketball should be about. Good flow, good opportunities for good defense that lead to fast break opportunities, great blocks at the rim. We want all of that kind of exciting action to be at the forefront more so than an analytical viewpoint of trying to dictate what is the most efficient. And if I stick my arm just in this position, I can gain this. We want to get away from that and get back to the flow of good basketball, which we all grew up loving and continue to love in our league. How big an adjustment are you expecting this to be for players? And I, I mean, the NBA, how games are called is, you know, it, it's organic, right? It, it has changed over the years. You, in fact, were refereeing for what, about a decade when the NBA eliminated the hand check rule uh, from the league. Are you expecting it to be, you know, as you look back on that time when you were refereeing games to where we are now, are you expecting it to be 
that kind of adjustment for players as they kind of figure out what they can and can't do? Well, I'll, I'll refer back to my original statement when I first when we first started talking. I, I think our players are the, not only the best and most gifted athletes, I think they're the smartest athletes in the world. And I think that they are going to make the adjustment because as long as our group does its job, and that doesn't mean perfect, perfect or through a sense of perfection, but it does mean that the critical mass of consistency takes place that we can deliver a consistent Wednesday night to Friday night to Sunday night to Tuesday night effort so that our, our teams can then coach it appropriately when it's not called the way it's been called in the last three or four years. Now our coaches are armed with the proper tools to coach their teams appropriately. And we can then get this idea of alignment between coaches, players, and referees of what should and should not be called. That starts with our good work. And that's one of the reasons we're starting it here in Sacramento as the league, the first summer league starts tonight, um, then on into Utah, which is running simultaneous right now to Sacramento. And then later this week, when we all get down to Vegas and mass as a league, uh, we'll continue. It's really, important that we start this in summer league so that our coaches and our franchises have the ability to to teach ultimately refereeing is only as good as the alignment it has with the expectations of the league and if we do our job as consistent adjudicators of the game then coaches can coach up to that level and we can all okay we'll all disagree from time to time through the spirit of competition about whether we are delivering on that but by and large when we do our job the rip through is rarely argued right now Mm -hmm. Right. We're pretty good with the rip through every now and then as referees, we miss and get free throws on a rip through that we shouldn't. But that's very rare. And we know this through our own sets of data that our referees and our players and our coaches. And now you see players having made the adjustment. You know, when the overwhelming majority of our players use the rip through move, as soon as they get to four fouls in the period. That they're so smart, that they're so, you know, in tune with the game that they realize if I do the rip through when they have that defender whose hand is out and in an illegal position, if I do the rip through, then we get the opportunity to go to the bonus and get the penalty, right? But through the first four, you don't see rip through. Our players have adjusted to that. I really believe in our players and I believe in our coaching staffs that they are the best coaches in the league. And when we have a, a, a month, I don't know. Don't quote me on the time, even though we're here being recorded. You know, I, I don't want that thrown back in my face and in, in the Twitter sphere. But nonetheless, I really have faith that our players will adjust. We'll have an adjustment period, of course. They're going to see whether we follow through on our charge that the competition committee has asked of us. But when we do that, and I have full expectation that our staff is the best referee staff in the world. Now, once again, I'm biased. But when we're asked to do something, we really do deliver on an excellent level, not a perfect level, but an excellent level on what it is the league expects us to do. And we'll continue as we have in the past. We'll continue to monitor this and calibrate it throughout the season. We'll get out videotapes. We'll continue to have uh, a lot of meetings with the competition committee, even once the season starts to help fine tune this. We'll send out all the appropriate updates to that, to the, to the, to you and the media, to um, the teams, so that they can coach it, and then, of course, the referees as well. I'm just curious, what are your memories as a referee of that first year that hand-checking was taken out of the game? Yeah, I think that that, that was the summer league, which is when we installed that, 
I was still a young referee when that took place. And I was in summer league as a referee and, you know, the chant, we had players with 10 and 11 and 12 fouls, you know, in a, in a non-foul out league. And, you know, the crowds were letting, let them play, let them play. And so, you know, I, I don't think we're going to have to adjust to, into that level on this because hand checking had become such a normal part of defense. Um, but it really didn't take that long for our, our players to get to the use of a proper forearm, which is a proper forearm for us is to absorb a blow. It's up against the body. You can't guide with a forearm. Um, hand checking, we realized we, it's very difficult to play the game of, of NBA basketball, but really any basketball, when someone makes a move, that you don't react to your hand going out. We live our lives with our hands. And that's when we calibrated to speed, quickness, balance, and rhythm as being part of that interpretation. We expect a little tactile tuck touch when someone makes a move but if it doesn't affect speed quickness rhythm and balance and they get the hand off then we realize once again what do our fans and what makes our game beautiful flow we don't need all of those hand checks that are a tactile touch we mm. do want the ones that affect our offensive players speed quickness rhythm and balance so you see play offensive players how do they try to influence an official with a head snap Right. And we had to calibrate as officials on that hand checking to make sure that we weren't giving into head snaps as a form of trying to show us their balance or rhythm had been affected, but that the actual hand by the defender had affected that. And our group as referees really does work just as hard. And I know that that's hard for many of your listeners to believe, but we watch tape. We watch tons and tons of tape. We will have at our preseason meetings, we will have three, 400 examples of this calibration that we're looking for between offensive and defensive balance, where we show them what an abrupt angle launch angle looks like, where what veering off abruptly looks like, what kicking out in an overt manner looks like. And we will show them ad nauseum, example after example, example. Then in the first month of the season, when we have all the new examples in this growing pains period, we will send out an update tape every month, not only to referees, but each franchise will get a copy of that. You and the media will get a copy of that so that we really do try to show, no, we're working at this. We're trying to deliver what the caretakers of the game have said is important to them. If that, uh, if that first summer league that you were talking about was in Boston, I might have been one of the people yet yeah, it. I, I might have been yelling at you, Monty, to let him play. Like, that might, been, that might actually have been me in the crowd saying something like that. Well, so you were not there. alone because it was <laughs> certainly in Boston. And uh, there were there were numerous CBA players. And, I was, you know, we had just recently come out of the CBA at that point, which is now, our, of course, our G League. But there were numerous CBA players trying to earn jobs. And, they, and we had good relationships with them because we had all come through together. And they were like, man, you're killing me. I'm trying to get a job here. <laughs> so I understand that frustration. I, I think this will be much smoother. We're much more aligned already. Uh, than we were in those ways. We're much more advanced. We're a much more mature league. We communicate with our teams and our franchises at a much higher level than we did 30 years ago. And that's nothing against 30 years ago. We're, we've just all grown and matured as a league. So I think that we'll be in a good space when the time comes for this to roll out over the next few days. And then, of course, later in the fall when it when it's for, quote, unquote, for reals, you know? Last question for you. Um, in the 1990s, we had 
fans in the playoffs chanting at Carl Malone at the free throw line, counting down the number of seconds. We saw that again in these playoffs with Giannis Tendekumpo. Um, there are rules on how long it takes uh, for a guy to shoot free throws, but, and I've written this, Monty, there are lots of rules about the free throw line that aren't always obeyed, whether it's you know guys stepping over the line a split second early, guys sometimes throwing their hands up at the line, which you're not really supposed to do. Um, I'm just curious, it, it, what do you tell referees to look for when a free throw is happening? And, and what is your reaction to having another player you know, have his, have a clock from fans in the crowd. Well, I don't control the franchises or the fan bases. And that's just one way of, of sort of having quote unquote, the, the home court advantage, obviously fans, uh, our fans are the best fans in the world and, and they look for opportunities to help their, their home franchises. There's no doubt about that. I think one of the things that's really important, Chris, for, for us is that we don't have the, the shot clock or a, a, a technical way to know 10.0, right? Mm. And so what's really important to a referee is to make sure that they're not calling violations at 9.7 and 9.8. Now, we've instructed our referees to, to do better. I think we could have done better as, as, a, as a staff this year on that minutia of our game, quite frankly, um, and we will grow in that area. But that being said, on a five-second call to inbound the ball, you, you don't have a clock with 5.0 in front of you. And you cannot have a violation at 4.7 that then potentially impacts a game when you are wrong on that. So we're looking for that human error element that allows us to adjudicate the game with the idea of the spirit of the rule in that regard. So, for example, if someone is accidentally two inches over and you just barely, maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't, why was the rule put in for people to be behind the three-point line until the release? So that the high flyers of our league didn't get a runway start like a jet engine to mm -hmm. go in and dunk and put back plays and, and have a distinct advantage over their competitors. All right. Now, that being said, we have to do a good job if people are abusing rules. And that's where my job and the job of the staff has to come in. But we don't want to make we, the one thing we can't have is quick triggers on timing devices when we don't have a technological piece in front of us to assist us. And that's really important. Do you want a technological piece? I mean, is that something, I mean, you, you mentioned that the five second count and, but there are referees counting off usually five seconds. I, I don't see referees when guys are at the free oh, that's, throw line. That's always been an internal, an yeah. internal clock for us. And it did Monty. It did. Get, it did get called. Like, I think it was the Miami game from Giannis, like late in the game, there was a 10 second call on Giannis there, which kind of blew my mind a little bit because like it, it just, it set a, kind of set a precedent like to me. Now he wasn't called for that subsequently as the playoffs went on. And look, I'll, I'll be the first one to tell you fans count fast. Like they definitely count fast, faster, but what, like, do you, but do you want a, a technological aspect that would that make it easier? Or is this just something you'd prefer that they be eyeballing and monitoring from a general way? You know, that's an interesting question, Chris, because I truly don't care. My job as a referee is to adjudicate the spirit of the rules as our league ex has an expectation for them. If our competition committee says that this is a big enough issue for the entire league that we want a technological piece, 
I'll embrace that when it comes along. I'll instruct our referees how to address that. You know, we, we do that now with precision timing. There's all these avenues of, of technological advancements that have helped us. But all of those came from the, the impetus of the competition committee saying this is an issue that we want help on. Instant replay is a good example of that. But we are seeing even now that instant replay has its, its dark side to it. Do we want to search for perfection so much that we want 35 minute last two minutes of games, but the current rules have an expectation for our referees to go over under those conditions and use instant replay because there is a thirst for perfection. And I think that what the competition committee does such a wonderful job of and has driven our league to great heights and our league office has, has done a good job with this as well is truly finding that balance about how technology can help us. We're currently exploring where is instant replay? And we're going to see that in some of the summer leagues. Where is the balance for instant replay so that it can assist in making sure that egregious misses are, are taken care of, but that we don't kill the spirit of the game by going too deep into this idea that perfect referees are going to be the only group held to this idea of perfection. And we want to be perfect too. Referees want that. Nothing weighs on a referee more than that. But I, the competition committee would drive that technological advancement if we ever wanted it. And it wouldn't be the referees saying, oh, we've got to have this. Referees want to serve the game. That's our role is to serve the game. The game is about our players, our schematic themes that coaches pull up for, for the use of their personnel and how they can bring people together, men together in a way that they're cohesive and in one unit. And it's about our franchise's connection to their players. It's about the, the young people of our, of our communities looking up and seeing Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook and LeBron James and, and Luca and saying, well, maybe one day that can be me. The, the game is not about referees referees hopefully deliver the appropriate alignment of what the league wants from them. And if they, and if we communicate well with one another, the way we have with the competition committee, then we're three steps further along the pathway of giving the service that our teams and our players and our coaches, our owners and our franchise bases deserve. Now they're always going to think that, that we're out to get them. We're not. We really do like this idea of, the game being at the forefront and us trying to uphold standards in a way that the rest of the league can say, we're proud that the game is fair. We're proud that the game is balanced and that everyone has a free opportunity to compete naturally and within their normal play. Just to put a button on this money, do you, so I'm clear, do you want a referee when a guy's at the free throw line counting to 10? Because Giannis is, one of the biggest stars in the game. This is not going anywhere anytime soon. Do you want someone there doing a 10 count? And, and how, how, what were your instructions? Every referee should enforce the rule book with those guidelines, making sure that you are not, not at 9.7. But the key to that is I want to make sure that in any area of anyone's work, you start to see holes in it. There are little areas that don't seem like a big deal until all of a sudden they are a big deal. Devil's in the details, right? We, we know that phrase. And over the course of a season, I think we could have done a better job in this area. I, I'm willing to own that. Now, heading into this season, 
We're going to do a better job with that. But it's not going to be a, a better job with one player. It's going to be a better job across the league so that we're fair and that the rule books are the rule book is applied appropriately to each and every player across our league fairly so that that we really do do a better job in this area that we allowed a little leakage in across our league so that once again we serve the league appropriately for everyone whether you're on a 10-day contract or you've signed a max deal and that's important to me personally that the fairness isn't just about that 10.0 within a specific rule but that that 10.0 or that specific rule gets applied to every player fairly and if we don't have that then we really don't have the environment in which people can compete and i want people to be able to compete because one of the great things about our league is is that you saw and you see every year the joy of the hard work that those players and coaches know that has gone into that victory, that final victory. And you know it's real. You can only know it's real if we've done our job and created the fair environment to know that all those hours in the gym, all that footwork that you did at Pete Newell's camp years ago, you know, to get your footwork just right, all that work has a payoff because you know that the outcome was a fair one and not a perfect one. We're not perfect, but a fair one in which we really do apply those rules to each and every player equitably. Free throw lines like become what the baseball batter's box almost is. I remember growing up, you know, growing up in Boston, you, you know, remember David Ortiz, you know, stepping out, rubbing his gloves. Nowadays, you got everybody's got a routine as they uh, get to the free throw line. You had you eliminate some of those routines and we speed the game up by like two or three. That's a great minutes. point because as as a role of service, you really do try to accommodate sure. players and and their sense of getting set within a confines of fairness, like. Mm-hmm. What, what is allowed for one player. So we don't want to be sitting there throwing them the ball as they're not looking. You know, I mean, none of that is beneficial to anyone. That being said, it does have to fall into the umbrella of flow and what we're here for, which is competition. No question. Monty, I really appreciate the information um, and you uh, talking to me about this. Thanks uh, for your time, man. I'm looking forward to seeing how this all comes together uh, over the next few months. As am I. Thank you for having me, Chris. It's always a pleasure to see you. That's it for this week's episode. My thanks to Mark Stein and Monty McCutcheon for joining the show. As always, subscribe, rate, review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you download podcasts. And we'll see you next week. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.